Welcome to part two of Script of Screen's podcast on Judas and the Black Messiah, where Kenyatta, Mark, Derek, and I continue with discussing diverse representation done well in film, favorite scenes, and movie recommendations. Remember, you can join the Boston Screenwriters Group on meetup.com and RSVP for an online event, peer reviewing scripts, giving feedback on fellow writers' work while networking with them as well. We hope to see you then. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. And that's the thing. Um, <clears throat> I had a discussion about this film with somebody, and they said that um, there's enough material here. Basically, you know, the real life story is enough for a series. And just like you said, I agree with you one thousand percent that this film was superior to. Pay- I wasn't the biggest fan, even though I, you know, Mario Van Peebles he made uh, Blue Jack City, which I thought was, you know, a cool movie, but um, so, and I was expecting more from Panther, and he also did Black Cowboy movie, I can't think of the name of it right now. Posse. What's it called? Posse. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, but anyways, so, and and I said, yeah, there's a gap between, what other Black Panther movie out there? I even had to um, Spike Lee did one with um, Roger. I can't pronounce the last name, but they did a kind of like a film play. Okay, um, called uh, what was it called? Damn, help me! It was, it was a play, it was a one man show. What the hell is? Oh yeah, Roger Smith did one on on Huey Newton. You're talking about? Yeah, yeah. What's name? Of, yeah. What's the name of it? I'm not sure. Maybe it was a Huey. I don't know. Oh, no, there's but, a Hugh Pugh Newton story. Yeah, it's just. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So I guess my point is, and I at first it's like I'm kind of like, uh, you know, riding the fence well I could put that in the category because it, it was a play. It was just you filmed the play. But anyway, you and me throwing that in there. How many Panther movies came out? I mean, you had Malcolm X that came out with. Like have what ninety two maybe yeah yeah and here you go like what's it thirty years later <laughs> another pair but I can't say because if you do the Huey P new even that was years ago so 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 my thing is this it's like what what makes anybody think that there's going to be a series because like a lot of people like um, it only lasted one season that was. Um, Watchmen, okay, with Regina King on HBO. So, um, my, my wife is distracting me. <laughs> Got out of here. Well, anyways, um, no, you made me see. She made me get off my. What was I talking about now? You said Watchmen, Regina King, only one. Okay, season. yeah, one season. So, I guess my point is this: is that um, what I like what Spike Lee did with Get on the Bus. He did the same thing. with actually. Malcolm X, they ran out of, you know, he needed more money to finish it. He went to, Mike went to Michael Jackson, Magic Johnson, Oprah, and, and a few other um, Black celebrities. And Get on the Bus was also, you know, um, he got money from Black celebrities, okay? So, so I guess when you said money from the industry, and that's the thing, um, I think there was an African saying proverb that goes, there's a difference between 
I'm paraphrasing. A difference between the, the hunter telling the story and the lion telling the story. So if you're expecting, if you're a hunter and you're, you're expecting, the lion's expecting the hunter to, <laughs> hey, finance this, my story, the telling of my story, you know what I'm saying? And I, and I think that should be, there, there should be more of that. I mean, you know, we brag about Tara Perry with the, uh, one of the most massive, uh, you know, studios that could rival all the, all the, you know, all the big dogs, you know what I'm saying? Um, you do have Tim Reed, you have others, you know, people that have, it may be small in comparison, but just production, you know, uh, you know, black owned. So I guess what I'm saying is if we want to see more, if you want to see accurate, it, like you say, it has to have black directors also. To me, that's true diversity. Cause you know, if we, that's the big thing people want to talk about diversity. I see a film, like I saw a horror film last night and it was like um, wrong turn. It was, I think that's a reboot of it. And you know, you had to, you know, people, they went the wrong way cause there was in the woods. And so, but if you think about the, um, the, the, um, the characters, you had a gay couple, you had interracial, you had a black. So to me, people will slap the label that, oh, this is what diversity is. Um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, the cast because they all did a good job, but, but we can't confuse uh, diversity and um, tokenism. You know what I mean? Um, don't, 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 every time, just because you put one black person here or a gay person there that, Oh, this was to me. Diversity is, you know, um, behind the camera too. The writing, the directing, the producing, executive producing. We, we, you know, we need more of that because if you keep relying on kind of like the mainstream, you know, um, you're going to get the Harriet, the you know that movie, the Harriet. You're going to get, you know, because. That movie Harry kind of reminds me of Resident Evil for some reason, <laughs> but it was just in the slave days. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, um, and, and and I think that's why this one works so well because you had you know a bunch of black folks behind the camera. We had um, written by and you know what I'm saying uh, director so on so forth, even producer because. Right. One of them came out with half the money. Now imagine you have to get all the money. What kind of? Because we talked about this this too in previous uh, podcasts, where, um, you know, if you if you're counting on somebody giving you money, you gotta take whatever they give you. Gotta make it work. You know what I'm saying? So so if they decide for you to uh, put whatever characters, they could change your whole script up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But if you come out your own money, boom, I mean, you can hire who you want. You can, you know, you don't have to have somebody hold you back. And I, with this film, I, I, it, it, it came across like the uh, people, the filmmakers of this film, they did pretty much what they sound to. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not like, oh, I made this film, but it's effed up because people are telling me what to do. 
You know what I mean? So I, so I kind of encourage, you know, uh, us financing, putting money in, therefore you have some kind of control of how it's told. Yeah, you mentioned Malcolm X and, and that movie was, huh, you know, I love the movie. I remember when it was being made, I remember the controversy around what was going on back then because uh, Warner Brothers had promised Spike Lee a certain budget and they pulled, you know, the budget from under him and said, nope, you're not, not going to get the rest of the money. We gave, we gave him like half the money um, to make the movie. And he's like, wait a second, I've got this huge, you know, three hour epic. You just can't cut my budget in half. So he, he did, you know, do that you know, crowdsourcing that allowed him to finish the product. And even, you know, once the movie was released, there was the controversy around, you know, um, when you went to see the movie, you had to, you know, check your ticket stub because there was this thing happening where a lot of folks were going to see Malcolm X given the wrong ticket stub. And it happened so frequently that it couldn't be, just be a mistake, right? So there was some playing with the the, the box office money with the, the the Malcolm X movie too. I don't know how much money he was cheated out of, but um, a lot of folks um, were given, you know, a, a stub for something else. Um, so there's this kind of disincentive for for black filmmakers to to make these courageous projects because they're not going to be rewarded with the budgets they want to get. And then you have to, you know, you mentioned uh, Tyler Perry, and it's almost like I think back since we're talking about Harriet, I'm thinking of slave days. There was a concept called meritorious manumission, which meant that a slave was given freedom if they're proven worthy, and you're proven worthy by showing you're not going to be a threat. And I think you're talking about Tyler Perry, he's in no way a threat um, in terms of the content that he's making. He could be a financial threat, but um, certainly not a threat in terms of what he's producing. He's not making movies that will, in my opinion, um, push people to think um, in the way that this movie, Judas and the, Bla and the Black Messiah would, or Malcolm X would. He's, he's more or less uh, putting folks to sleep. Thus, he's given, I, I guess, the opportunity to be distributed uh, in theaters the way he is. He, he has his own production company and studio, um, entire infrastructure, but um, beyond that, you have to have distribution as well. He's, he's really got that uh, in terms of um, pretty much his, his path is, is, is paved for him by the big production companies because they, they do like what he's producing. Not only are they profitable, they also give a certain message that's not going to you know, awaken, awaken the minds of, of Black folk, in my opinion. Um, yeah, so... Um... Back to the um, idea of like the story being told, like you sat there and um, Kenny said that um, Watchmen ended after like one series or one season. But like, I also look at Watchmen as like a mini series itself. Like I felt like um, Judas and the Messiah would have been a great idea for a mini series just because you would have actually seen great character development coming out of both characters, not just one or the other. Like you would have had tensions and scenes build up, especially towards the ending of the um, show, if, in case it was well, not going to be a miniseries now, but like just the concept of miniseries, it would be a really good idea just because you would have like a really great storyline set up and just be over at the end of the series. Yeah, I agree. It could have been a wonderful miniseries, just so long as it was not a Netflix series that goes on like three or four episodes too long, right? It needs to be <laughs> maybe it's a, a six hour uh uh, miniseries like it used to be back in the old days you'd have um on one of the major networks cbs a nbc or abc you'd have you know three nights of a of a, a miniseries two hours each 
night. So it could be a, a six hour documentary, six hour miniseries rather, um, but not a, a 10 hour Netflix style where they kind of stretch it out. They dilute it a little bit. Yeah, I thought Hulu did a great job with the Wu-Tang saga, the way they told their stories from different character point of views. Yeah, given his documentary work, I'm surprised that uh, Spike Lee hasn't uh, offered up like a Black Panther miniseries or a documentary or dramatized otherwise. And I'm, I'm sure he, maybe he has like proposed it a few times, but maybe uh, just like with Malcolm X, that uh, they just weren't going to pony up the money for uh, for a mini for that much of an investment. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's pretty much where we come in. Um, you know, if because I know which color is working on a movie based on the Haitian Revolution, um, Toussaint Louverture, um, the actor from Lethal Weapon, Danny Glover, yeah, Danny, Danny yeah, 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 yeah. Man, that that should have been made by now, man. Um, you know. It's like you hear, you hear, you hear black actors, um, you know, folks working in the industry. They complain about a roles, black role, you know, roles available for black actors, so on and so forth. My thing is this, you know, like Oprah. I was like, Oprah, what the hell are you complaining for? You have, what is she like? A, is she a billionaire now? Or definitely, she, she's definitely more than five hundred million, right? She's a so, billionaire. So, yeah, so you know, you got too many billionaires complaining about what Hollywood isn't doing. You know, I'm, I'm like, are you, are you serious? And if I old Davis, how many black writers you know? How many this, that, and the other you know? You know, what I'm saying make phone calls, uh, work together because a lot of people and I, we all uh, we all agreeing that this would have made a good kind of like mini series. You know what question whether get done or whatever. So I mean, we, if, if you have writers willing to write it, um, then you know you got people willing to produce it. My thing is this: if Hollywood doesn't want to do, it, you can't force them to do it. You know, so um, if you know black celebrities want to see it, and you know, there's definitely a, a niche for it. I mean. Um, Tyler Perry, he found his niche. We kind of talked about him earlier. You may not like the niche, but you know, you may not like the product, but the product is perfect for its niche and made him billionaire. So I guess what I'm saying is there's enough to um the you know, all the people who are complaining wants to see this stuff to put the your money where your mouth is, you know. If not, if you want to wait on Hollywood, it's on you. And, and then um, if Hollywood does do it, then you got to hope that it's not a um, caricature of his, black history. Right. There's a film that came out in the early 90s that was completely independent um, production by um, an a African director named um, Haile Jarima. Um, Sankofa, he's been a few other movies since then, um, completely independent. He only had several, a handful of, of prints of it and he would you know, take them by hand to <laughs> these small venues to show the movies, right? Because he had no distribution. My, my, my concern is that if we do even find you know, these people who are billionaires to create these movies, 
where are they going to be shown, right? I mean, it's, it's going to be like one of those things where Holly Jarima going from small theater to small theater. You can do it. You can pr produce a great piece of art and history and, and something that's worth being praised, but you're going to probably find yourself losing in the end in terms of the financial piece if you're going to be putting a lot of money into it at least. That's, I think, the concern for a lot of people who are creatives who have these ideas to do this if there's that uh, a mechanism by which they can kind of make their money back, it's just uh, a bit of charity they're doing there. So, so what are people's favorite scenes? Um, you know, I really appreciate both. The, I mentioned the opening scene and also the scene where um, I think it's great when they, they, they start their um, venture into the headquarters of the crowns and they, the, the shot through the peephole. And here, here's, you know, um, Fred Hampton turning around in the middle of the peephole and the, 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 um, the whole um, Black Panther crew walks into this enemy territory, the tensions being built up and will they recognize William O'Neill? Uh, will there be conflict when they're in there? How the two groups gonna, you know, function in this space? Um, yes, that, that for me was, was a, a great, scene and it showed the potential uh, of the Panthers and what would have been seen as a rival group didn't have to be a rival group. And it, it goes into showing um, Hampton's ability to, to engage in coalition building, which that I think was the very reason why he was considered to be uh, the potential black messiah because of the ability to, to link uh, various groups together um, against those who are oppressing them. So that was probably my favorite scene is that Con, that, that, that entering the the, the um, crown's headquarters. Oh, just a thought, real quick, just a response to what you what you said about um, what made him the Black Messiah is the ability to reach across, you know, to the gangs and, like I said, to convert them more to a more uh, positive um, asset to the community. The scene for me, and I know, Mark, you're not going to like this scene, but the scene for me was when um, Jimmy walked into the coffee shop. I want to say it's a coffee shop. They never really clarify what exactly it is. All I know is that they're in front of a, looks like a bakery counter is why I'm assuming it's a coffee shop. But um, when he goes in there and like asks the police what's going on, why are you harassing these men? And he just opens fires on them. And the reason why I like that scene so much is just because like, who knows what would have happened to the group of people that were there that were being frisked. Like they could have ended up dead, um, missing, murdered, who knows what. And then Jimmy just showed up, saved everybody and almost died. Like I thought that was it for him, honestly. But then next scene you see him in the hospital with um, Jacob trying to communicate with them. And he's like still very much still alive. Like to me, I don't know, to me, I felt like that was just one of the best scenes because who knows how many people have been in situations such as that and they weren't rescued when they needed to be. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I didn't like the scene. I just think it's, in my opinion, a missed opportunity to, to, to provide some, um, I think it's necessary buildup uh, to it. They could have done more with it. Um, yeah, it's an important scene in the movie. Um, I agree with that. I just think more could have been done with it. I don't, I don't dislike the scene. For me, it's it's hard to pick the favorite scene because there's so many good scenes in this film. But I would say that um, <clears throat> the the first scene with Fred Hampton, okay, uh, be, he was being introduced. 
there was somebody on before him and um the way he was looking into the camera you know what i'm saying it's, it's like you you could see him embodying the spirit of uh chairman uh you know fred hampton but then when he started to speak we thought that he didn't even need the microphone can you hear me you know there's like yeah that he just went on and just that scene itself it uh it's it, it set the tone um because like uh, there are other films that uh have the kind of dialogue that uh they would had in this film but um sometimes the execution of it or the context it, it feels heavy-handed it feels you know kind of like overwritten you know that sort of thing you know what i'm saying so but here it's like it's some very heavy stuff he's talking about you know very serious stuff but it didn't feel heavy-handed it didn't feel overwritten it didn't feel you, you know what i'm saying yeah i, I think everything just felt natural you didn't even you know get I, people are not even offended by the uh black panthers anymore like not, not, like it was back then um anyways but yeah I, I, so i think that scene right there was my favorite one and i even like the points you were coming up with that like, just because you, you know you, you know you have slogans and you have your dashikis and everything all those are really you know success you can't measure you know what i'm saying but you need some tangibles the tangible is the thing, and that's liberation. And I think we kind of do that nowadays. Uh, we think it does it because um, we 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 put up a Black Lives Matter uh, um, flag or something, whatever. You know what I mean? You you, you can uh, whatever hashtag this hashtag that. You can even tear down statues and plaques of uh, white supremacists. You know, like they did it. You know, um, Christopher Columbus statue, and so I forgot where it was, but you know, a few places around the country. Okay, that's that's all cute and everything, but that's that stuff is just empty, kind of like okay, symbolisms. It's like symbolic victories. So symbolic victories are basically fake victories. You know, I mean, people can come up with the positives from symbolic victories, but hey, but in the end of the day, what you need results, you need um something tangible. So, 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 so I think he said a lot in that speech and in, in that scene. And I love it because you can hear the um not only uh, I'm not just kind of like talking, sounding like him, because I don't know if anybody has seen any heard any uh interviews or seen any video short videos of him speaking but um he didn't sound like um even just his attitude the way he carried himself so and i think just in that very short period of time they established who fred hampton was yeah, I would agree. I really appreciate that scene as well. And the emphasis on not, you know, um, being caught up in symbolism, right? I mean, it goes back to something that was said before, uh, also about the, you know, the, simply the presence of people of color or, or presence of diversity uh, 
is not representation, right? So presence and representation are not the same thing. You can be present and still not represent just because you are there and you are a member of a group that is or has been uh, marginalized does not mean you're going to work, you know, in the best interest of that group or that group in mind when you, when you, you know, do act, right? So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's major. But also one scene that I think was really uh, important and it, it, it kind of plays a trick, um, well, not a trick, but it, it gets the audience to um, <laughs> feel some kind of way about O'Neill is, is when he's confronted in the, in the car, uh, pistol's been pulled on him, kind of questioning his loyalty. You know, what's this stuff about you carrying a badge? And in that moment, this character who, who you're not supposed to root for, you're like, oh, I hope he doesn't get shot. I'm thinking that, you know, because even though I don't you know, like what he represented, who he was, in the moment, you somehow, some way, I think it's meant to set the audience up to um, be on his side so he's not killed in that moment or shot in that moment, right? It, it's almost like a trick that's being played in the audience. And there was a, a well done uh, scene to see how he gets himself out of that, that jam. Um, and he's in a similar kind of you know, jam when uh, the, the Panther from New Haven is there. Um, and it, it should have been obvious that he was nervous about you know, the discussion around what happens to turncoats or, or plants or moles and he's really acting nervously and kind of over the top in terms of what he would have done to uh, a turncoat if he should come in contact with one so you know those are two really interesting scenes that go into you know um, I guess what it means how it feels to be uh, a mole in that situation you know, how, how uh, tense it is to be that kind of person again I don't um, respect or uh, like the person who was uh, William O'Neill, but it makes the audience, at least made me kind of in that moment, at least not want to see him harmed when he's in the car, the gun pulled on him. No, and I can, I can agree with that as well. Just like at the scene at the bar where the um, pimp hands him the drugs, you're like questioning, like, you know, you already know what happens just because you learned about it in class or you read about it before. But yeah, no, like the scene where he's handed the drugs, you're like, yeah, you're not going to do this. You shouldn't do this. You know, you don't want to do this. Why would you even do this? But at the same time, you know exactly what's going to happen. But because it's a movie, you're hoping that he changes his mind last minute. No, I agree that um, with both you guys that you really felt you was hoping so you know in terms of character they they, they did some really nice stuff around um, even though you hate what he's doing but at the same time it's like you're, you're, you're cheering for him to, to turn over a new leaf you know what I'm saying well ultimately it's like to me I felt like even though he did do it he hated it but at the same time, he kept going, so it's kind of it's kind of confusing, <laughs> you know. Uh, even though they try to, even though they try to show that he has some kind of uh, ambivalence, some kind of like uh, internal internal philosophical conflict, you know what I'm saying. But at the same time, you know, he kept going. Years later, I don't know how many years, about five, six, what. So, so it's not like at the end of this movie and what happened to Freddie Hampton happened and it ended in terms of his involvement in his um, 
you know, being a CI, right? He continued to, he was still the Black Panther Party years later. So that's the confusing part, you know what I'm saying? So, but you know, I myself too, I agree with that, that I was cheering for him. Hopefully it's like, he does something to, to prevent it from happening. But of course it's history, real life history. So we had to go on that route. You know what I mean? So if it wasn't a fictional, you know, if it wasn't based off, you know, real life, if it was a fictional film, they probably went in that direction. But who knows? He could have gone Tarantino and like the Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> they killed they killed Hitler in that movie. Maybe they would have right. turned on uh, Mitchell and, and uh, gotten Mitchell or somehow went, gone to, to DC and take it, taken out, you know, uh, FBI uh, leader. Oh my gosh, drawing a blank now. Um, played by um, Sheen. Hoover? Yes, yeah, taking out um, Jagger Hoover. Uh, <laughs> But no, they were going to go that route. Still, I was hoping for <laughs> something like that to happen in the movie. But one one thing that, that, that's really important to, to note also, because it sounds like we've all had these moments in that movie where we're kind of cheering for William O'Neill to do something different. That you know, please somehow depart from from you know the historical story we've heard. Um, think about what it meant to be. Uh, immersed in that role, like right? for, for Lakeith Stanfield, he needed therapy afterwards. You know, he apparently had a hard time kind of reconciling with the fact he actually played this role. He, I guess he wondered if it said something about him that he was, I guess, still willing to, to, to play this part. Uh, he needed to have therapy afterwards. So, you know, he, you know, put everything into that role and it was obvious that that was the case. And he certainly, in my opinion, be considered for you know, some awards because he did a fantastic job uh, as O'Neill. Yeah, be, he, and a word on that is that uh, they actually filmed the the murder of Fred Hampton on the anniversary of the actual live event. So in Lakeith, uh, I think one of the interviews, he did say that, yeah, he was very just ner nerve wracked, uh, just completely just um, and completely immersed in the, but he had to also be completely immersed in the role. And I think that definitely comes off. And uh, a line that, uh, one of my, a line that, that uh, right at the top of the movie that I think uh, kind of spells it out is uh, when he's first being interrogated in the, after uh, unsuccessfully uh, uh, carjacking, uh, he says, uh, the, the cop asks him, uh, why do you use a badge instead of a gun? And he goes, um, well, because a badge is more powerful than a gun. And it, because it seems like the whole army is coming after you. And I think that plays into uh, what goes on the rest of the movie is that uh, uh, O'Neill probably thought that, uh, you know, in the back of his head, uh, he has the support of the American government that, uh, you know, that uh, there's, uh, he's doing, you know, these, these are questionable things, but ostensibly, he, you know, uh, why, why would the, um, the proximity to power is just so, you know, it's a, um, oh, what's the exact, I don't, I don't quite remember what the exact phrase is, but it's, uh, um, it leads you down a bad path, uh, just the proximity to, um, the, I should say the illusion of power because he really isn't, he really doesn't have that much uh, influence. Uh, he's, he's just a tool in the, uh, that the FBI used in order to uh, gain more access. But uh, I, I think that line just sort of uh, spells out his character, sort of lays out the thesis for his character and, uh, uh, and where his character eventually ends up in both uh, in the movie and in real life. 
Right. Well, the, the proximity to power is intoxicating, right? In the sense that um, you see him early on really uneasy with Mitchell. And then next scene, he's in the home of Mitchell and Mitchell offers him some scotch. Um, and he's kind of wondering like, well, wow, you know, looking at the place, how much money do you make? Um, and he's wondering if there's some money in it for him too. And then by the end of the movie, when we're finally seeing Mitchell and um, O'Neill together, he's eating steak in a fancy restaurant and snapping his fingers at you know at the um, the waiter, right? I, I want more of this or whatever. He's signaling to his plate, so he feels very comfortable. He, he goes from a place where he's uncomfortable with the agent and what he's doing, uncomfortable in the agent's home, kind of uneasy in some of their interactions, their their, their um, kind of clandestine meetings to. We're in this restaurant. I'm eating this steak, and I'm at home, you know, with, you know, this kind of standing for right now at least. And there's some kind of comfort around that. I think that's supposed to, that's supposed to convey the 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 comfort with which he, you know, is engaging now with Mitchell as opposed to the earlier interactions. He's, he even talks about, you know, Mitchell by that point being some kind of a mentor or a role model, I guess, to him as well. So he's feeling much more comfortable with him. And that's why he continues, you know, five years after the death of Hampton, uh, still cooperating with the FBI to infiltrate um, the Panthers. And uh, right at the end, uh, I'm, I'm usually like, uh, it's usually a pet peeve of mine whenever there's, you know, long paragraphs of text, you know, uh, telling, well, uh, you know, especially with historical dramas, that long title cards that uh, tells you, you know, what happened in the aftermath of all this and everything. And uh, but I think here it's uh, very necessary to uh, sort of tell the epilogue of this of what of what happened to the Black Panther Party that eventually disbanded uh, and what happened to O'Neill because uh, in, as you see the real the real William O'Neill in the that uh, Eyes on the Prize uh, documentary um, you did, and then uh, of course the the title card that kind of brings that kind of brings it all together is that he took his own life very shortly afterwards. I think even that night after it aired. Uh, so obviously something was weighing on him. Uh, whether that was because of uh, he felt uh, he felt very conflicted about it, and you know, uh, 20 years after the fact, or whether he was uh, um, afraid that he was finally found out, uh, we'll never know. But I think that's I think that's very important. Usually, it's usually a pet peeve of mine because it tells them it usually tells a much more interesting story than uh, what the preceding uh, what happened in the preceding uh, movie. But uh, here, I think it adds to the story in a great uh, great effect. Yeah, I believe he actually committed suicide, ran out into the street, um, and was hit uh, by a vehicle um, just prior to the the airing of the documentary. He, he knew it was coming. He knew that he, people's eyes would be on him and not the prize anymore, that he'd be out to get him. So he just took his own life just prior to it being aired. Wrap this up. Do movie recommendations, uh, final words? Sure. All right. Want to start us off? Yeah, I recommend um, a documentary on the Black Panthers, PBS documentary, um, came out um, 2016, the Black Panthers Vanguard of the Revolution, definitely uh, worth checking out. Um, and another movie about a group that had a similar focus in terms of protecting uh, people in their own neighborhoods, um, 2003's uh, Deacons for Defense starring Forrest Whitaker, kind of tells a story of a group of people who 
kind of um, took arms, took up arms to protect themselves from um, police brutality? Well, for me, I want to recommend the book, Assassination of Fred Hampton. All right. Um, in terms of films, I would say that a movie I saw yesterday is called The United States versus Billie Holiday. Uh, even though I don't, I'm not, I'm, I am not a Lee Daniels fan because there are still certain things he does that I don't like, but overall, I did like that film. But, you know, if you see this, this uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, I would recommend you should have um, the United States versus Billie Holiday next to your queue or someplace close to, to your queue where you can see it very soon. What's the platform? Um, What's the platform? Oh, uh, you could get that on Hulu. Okay. Hulu, yeah. And um, I will also recommend, you know, of course, Small Acts. I'm always, we, you know, we always, uh, always, uh, you know, recommend that film. And um, what else? Okay, so I, I, I would say that's all I can think of right now in terms of uh, film recommendations. But overall, like I said, you know, we all agree that this is you know, um, history and there's a lot, there's a lot of, you know, history in the library, but if you're not a person who, who reads, you know, you will get some knowledge from, you know, film or documentaries, but, um, yeah, so I, I will say, hopefully, if you don't know this history, it will at least pique your interest enough to go, you know, research more, research further. So that's it. So I, I second to Mark's recommendation of the Black Panther doc uh, that was by, uh, that aired on PBS a few years ago. It is a very good primer, I would think. Um, it goes over the whole history of the Black Panthers in about uh, a little under two hours. Uh, so it's nice. So it's a nice introduction to them. Uh, but yeah, definitely keep up. Uh, if you're more interested, yeah, of course, there's more resources. Um, so Agnes Varda, um, you know, old time iconic uh, Belgian director, she has a short documentary that uh, she made uh, in the 60s uh, about the Black Panthers, it's about only 20, 30 minutes long, but uh, you get uh, the Black Panthers in their own words uh, without any sort of other filter. I think that's also invaluable. And um, another move, well, uh, another movie sort of about, uh, not so much about, uh, the FBI versus uh, uh, the, the black community, but uh, uh, sort of let the fire burn. Um, it's a, it is a, it's another documentary about uh, um, the, not the sort of the, um, uh, the successors to the Black Panther group uh, move on uh, was a, another black activist group in Philadelphia, but um, they started to uh, mix it up with the cops and, the, and everything. And then eventually led to just a bomb being dropped in the middle of uh, in the middle of a residential part, in a residential building. Uh, so not really about the, the FBI's involvement, the Phil, uh, Philadelphia police, 
uh, if you want to see a little, and that was in the mid 80s. Uh, so after all this, uh, so uh, sort of more um, incendiary work about uh, uh, policing and uh, uh, how they sometimes uh, aren't really there to protect and serve. Uh, they're there uh, to protect and serve uh, certain people. I would also like to recommend the recent documentary by Sam Pollard, MLK FBI, revealing the true nature of the FBI surveillance program on Martin Luther King in the 60s. A movie recommendation I would have, and it's only just because it's for some reason while watching Judas and the Black Messiah and then having this discussion, um, the movie that's hang out, that just hung out in the back of my mind was um, Do the Right Thing. And that's only just because like um, there's this making of it where it discusses kind of like the history or the backstory that builds up into the movie or do the right thing by talking about the um, the neighborhood gangs in Brooklyn, um, the constant battles between um, African-Americans and um, white people, um, just going in between each other's neighborhoods, killing, fighting, shooting, police officers arresting African-Americans for being in the wrong neighborhood or just simply just arrest them period like i feel like that story alone is um worth watching do the right thing watching make the making of do the right thing as well thank you as always for giving us a listen we hope you enjoy our discussion in full on this powerful immediate work rest in power fred hampton Feel free to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and other platforms. You can support this podcast and the Screenwriters Group with a monthly donation by clicking on the support button in anchor.fm. You can find Kenyatta and I hosting the Boston Screenwriters Group on meetup.com and on YouTube with our forum recordings. You can join us by RSVPing to a virtual peer-reviewing script meetup by using the link in the description. We wish you all the best in your writing and other of life's pursuits. Continue on staying strong.